Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 160, Over the River and Through the Wood. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about A Christmas Carol. Well, we know it as A Christmas Carol, but Over the River and Through the Wood was originally titled The New England Boys' Song About Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood, trot past my dapple gray. Spring over the ground like a hunting hound, for this is Thanksgiving Day. Spring over the ground like a hunting hound, for this is Thanksgiving Day. Despite the song's quaint themes of traditional New England holiday cheer, the woman who wrote it was anything but traditional. Medford native Lydia Maria Child had been a pioneering children's author, but her increasingly radical positions on abolitionism, women's rights, and free thinking jeopardized her earning power and helped galvanize a movement. But before we talk about Mariah Child's Thanksgiving song, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Jared Ross Hardesty's Unfreedom, Slavery and Dependence in 18th Century Boston. We used this book as a source for our discussion on the origins of slavery in early colonial Boston way back in episode 74. Alongside Wendy Warren's New England Bound and Margaret Ellen Newell's Brethren by Nature, it's part of a wave of recent scholarship that reexamines the practice of enslaving African Americans in New England. Hardesty's book in particular looks at chattel slavery in the context of the rigid class hierarchy of Puritan Boston, and he sees it as the bottom rung of a ladder of unfreedom that also would have included penal servitude for criminals, hiring out pauper children, and even apprentices and indentured servants. Here's how the publisher describes the book. Instead of relying on the traditional dichotomy of slavery and freedom, Hardesty argues that we should understand slavery in Boston as part of a continuum of unfreedom. In this context, African slavery existed alongside many other forms of oppression, including Native American slavery, indentured servitude, apprenticeship, and pauper apprenticeship. In this hierarchical and inherently unfree world, enslaved Bostonians were more concerned with their everyday treatment and honor than with emancipation, as they pushed for autonomy protected their families and communities, and demanded a place in society. Drawing on exhaustive research in colonial legal records, including wills, court documents, and minutes of governmental bodies, as well as newspapers, church records, and other contemporaneous sources, Hardesty masterfully reconstructs an 18th-century Atlantic world of unfreedom that stretched from Europe to Africa to America. By reassessing the lives of enslaved Bostonians as part of a social order structured by ties of dependence, Hardesty not only demonstrates how African slaves were able to decode their new homeland and shape the terms of their enslavement, but also tells the story of how marginalized peoples ingrained themselves in the very fabric of colonial American society. You can find a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk by Dr. Carrie Greenidge about her new biography of William Monroe Trotter called Black Radical. You may remember Trotter as a central figure in our episode about Black Boston's opposition to the racist movie Birth of a Nation, when Trotter organized protests, petitioned the state legislature, and eventually met with President Wilson. He was an author, a newspaper publisher, and a founder of the NAACP, but he's been largely forgotten by history, overshadowed by later activists. This new biography puts William Monroe Trotter back into the center of the struggle for black rights in the early 20th century, 
as a radical counterweight to moderate figures like Booker T. Washington. Dr. Greenidge is a history professor at Tufts, as well as the co-director of the African American Trail Project. She'll be appearing at the Connolly branch of the BPL in Jamaica Plain. The talk begins at 6.30 p.m. on Monday, December 2nd. The event's free, and advanced registration is not required. We'll have the link you need for more information about Dr. Greenidge's talk and to buy a copy of Unfreedom in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 160. As we kick off this Thanksgiving episode, I have a lot to be thankful for this year. Nikki and I are finally moving forward with a home improvement project that's about 10 years overdue. I have a great group of staff and coworkers at my non-history-related day job, and I get to make a podcast about one of my favorite topics, Boston history. From interviewing incredibly intelligent and interesting historians to digging into little-known connections between a nostalgic holiday carol and the Boston abolition movement, I love having an outlet for my passion for my adopted city. I'm especially thankful this year for the listeners who've decided to sponsor this passion project on Patreon, contributing a small amount each month to help me make Hub history. If you're also thankful for the show or passionate about Boston history, please consider becoming a sponsor by going to patreon.com slash hubhistory or by going to hubhistory.com and clicking on the support link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. Perhaps we've come to think of this as a Christmas carol because of the references to white and drifting snow and jingling sleigh bells. While these days, snow on Thanksgiving is fairly rare. However, our older listeners will remember plenty of snowy New England Thanksgivings, and there would have been many more when the New England Boys song about Thanksgiving was originally published. When it first appeared in 1844, North America was still experiencing the tail end of a period known as the Little Ice Age, during which winters were much harsher than they are now. Interestingly, Jingle Bells, with its references to sleigh bells and snowdrifts, was also originally composed as a Thanksgiving song. A Georgia native was inspired to pen the lyrics about sleigh races that he witnessed while briefly living in Medford in the 1850s. A few years before that, the author of a New England boys' song about Thanksgiving was born in Medford as Lydia Maria Francis in 1802. Her father, Converse, was a baker, and her grandfather was said to have been killed by redcoats during the Concord fight. Lydia Maria Francis always hated the name Lydia, so she went by her middle name, which was spelled Maria, but she pronounced it as Mariah. She was the youngest of six children, and she was very close to the next oldest, her brother Converse Francis Jr. Mariah at first received a fairly typical girl's education for the time, attending what was essentially a finishing school. Converse Jr., however, was destined to be an influential Unitarian minister, and he went to Harvard University and then to Harvard Divinity. Knowing from the beginning that his little sister was remarkably intelligent, he made sure that she was challenged. When he was preparing for his entrance exams to Harvard at age 16, Mariah was just nine years old, but she read Homer, Milton, and Shakespeare alongside him and understood it at least as well as he did. She was finally able to attend a teacher's college in Maine as well as completing one year at a women's seminary. When she was just 22 years old, she published her first book, a historical novel set in colonial New England. Later that same year, she started a private school in Watertown, which she closed just two years later in order to focus on writing full-time. 
and to focus on David Child, who courted her briefly before the two wed in 1828. Her early novels would likely be called historical romances today, and in 1826 she began publishing Juvenile Miscellany, the first monthly magazine for children in the United States. After their marriage, the Child's family moved into Boston, where David was the editor of the Massachusetts Journal, a highly partisan Whig paper. He rapidly became very politically connected, but didn't make much in the way of money. When he attacked Andrew Jackson's policy of Indian removal, subscriptions declined, and he even spent time in jail for libel. Mariah, now Mariah Child, would be the primary breadwinner for the family for most of the rest of their marriage. She published a series of helpful household how-to books, starting with The Frugal Housewife in 1829. Later retitled to The Frugal American Housewife, this volume, along with follow-ups The Mother's Book and The Girl's Own Book, would be Mariah Child's most financially successful works. Through his Whig connections, David Child adopted an abolitionist outlook very early. While she was already supportive of David's abolitionist work, Mariah became energized after befriending William Lloyd Garrison in the early 1830s. She'd later write, I was then all absorbed in poetry and painting, soaring aloft on psych wings into the ethereal regions of mysticism. He got hold of the strings of my conscience and pulled me into reforms. It is of no use to imagine what might have been if I had never met him. Old dreams vanished, old associates departed, and all things became new. With her literary success and David's connections, the trustees of the Boston Athenaeum offered Mariah a three-year free membership to the library, where she immersed herself in the history of American chattel slavery. In 1833, Mariah's writing took a hard left turn away from children's magazines, household how-tos, and historical fiction. She published a book called an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans. In several brief online profiles of Mariah, I saw Mariah's appeal referred to as the first anti-slavery book. Longtime listeners will immediately realize that it wasn't, as both the topic and the title owe a debt of thanks to David Walker. In episode 117, we discussed Walker in his book, Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, a very early and very radical abolitionist tract. However, Mariah's Appeal was nevertheless a very early and influential book, predating Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin by almost 20 years. When Mariah wrote her appeal, William Lloyd Garrison had only been publishing The Liberator for two years, and abolition was considered an extreme and unreasonable position for a white person to hold. Not only that, but she deeply criticized the so-called colonization movement, which called for freed slaves to be shipped off to Africa to civilize that continent while creating a white nation in America. Instead, she envisioned a future where emancipated slaves were completely integrated into the fabric of American society, with full citizenship and participation in the political process. However, her most radical position may have been asserting that one day in the future, quote, a hundred years hence, interracial marriage might become accepted. In the preface to her book, she wrote, I am fully aware of the unpopularity of the task I have undertaken, but though I expect ridicule and censure, I cannot fear them. She was right. The censure came in a sudden drop-off in the sales of her popular books, especially her writing for children. 
In a profile of Mariah for a book about extraordinary women of the era, radical abolitionists, supporter of John Brown's insurrection, and Civil War veteran Thomas Wentworth Higginson quoted Harriet Martineau's The Martyr Age in America as saying that Child was a lady of whom society was exceedingly proud before she published her appeal and to whom society has been extremely contemptuous ever since. She added, Her works were bought with avidity before, but fell into sudden oblivion as soon as she had done a greater deed than writing any of them. Subscriptions to Juvenile Miscellany declined precipitously, and Mariah was forced to resign as editor. Her next helpful household book, The Family Nurse, didn't find the same wide audiences that The Frugal Housewife, The Mother's Book, and The Girl's Own Book had found just a few years before. Writing to a friend in later years, she thinks wistfully about returning to children's literature. With regard to the juvenile miscellany, the copyright never belonged to me. I have for some time wished to publish a revised edition of it under the title of Mrs. Child's Library for Children, in volumes of uniform sort. One volume containing what was suitable for children of three or four years old, another for children of seven or six, others for ten or twelve. My idea was only to use my own writing in it, together with the best parts of my juvenile souvenir evenings in New England, and whatever else I had occasionally written for children. Should the spirit move and the sale warrant it, this collection might be enlarged by some entirely new volumes. Most biographies of Child repeat her claim that the Athenaeum revoked her membership because of her abolitionist writings. However, many other prominent abolitionists retain their privileges, and the Athenaeum disputes her version. The Athenaeum itself simply says that the offer was rescinded, and the minutes of the trustees' meeting says, voted, that the general permission heretofore given to Mrs. Child to use the Athenaeum be henceforth considered as terminated. For the time, she'd have to satisfy herself with more activist forms of writing. Her appeal was cited by William Ellery Channing, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and Wendell Phillips as helping to win them over to the abolitionist cause. Her follow-up work was A History of the Condition of Women in Various Ages and Nations, which put her at the forefront of the nascent women's rights and suffrage movements. Her succeeding books, The Anti-Slavery Catechism, Authentic Anecdotes of American Slavery, and especially The Duty of Disobedience to the Fugitive Slave Act, cemented her abolitionist credentials. In 1841, she moved to New York City and accepted a position with the American Anti-Slavery Society as editor-in-chief of their journal, the National Anti-Slavery Standard. After three years in New York, David and Mariah returned to Massachusetts and settled in Wayland. In 1844, Mariah decided to jump back into the children's literature game. By this time, she was a follower of Horace Mann, the Massachusetts Secretary of Education, whom we profiled back in episode 116. Mann's vision of free, high-quality, universal education for all children inspired Mariah to begin a new series of children's books. The fact that she and David desperately needed the money didn't hurt either. This new series was called Flowers for Children and it was meant to entertain, to educate, and to inculcate children with Protestant morals. As she describes in an introduction to a later edition, this series consisted of a mix of new compositions and selections from her earlier work, all of which were revised and rewritten. About half of each of these volumes will consist of new articles written expressly for the occasion, and the other half will be a selection of what seemed to me the best of my own articles. 
formerly published in the Juvenile Miscellany. Upon reviewing the work for this purpose, I find that my maturer judgment rejects some inaccuracies, some moral inferences, and many imperfections of style. I have therefore carefully rewritten all the articles used in this present selection. Rewriting her older pieces had the side benefit of circumventing any copyright claims on the stories by her previous publishers. The poem, A New England Boy's Song About Thanksgiving Day, appeared in the second Flowers for Children volume alongside stories about a saucy squirrel, a sailor's dog, spring birds, and many more. These stories attempted to indoctrinate the reader with Mariah's own sense of morality, which wasn't universally shared and appreciated at the time. For instance, in that same edition of Flowers, there's a story about a little girl whose pet sheep gives birth to a white lamb and a black lamb, which becomes a very heavy-handed scene in which the little white girl has this exchange with her black governess in a barn. Nancy told her, God made the white lambs and the black lambs. God loves them both and made them to love each other. Then Mary said, I am my mother's white lamb, and Thomas is Nancy's black lamb and God loves us both. It's enough to make you gag, but the idea of interracial friendship and respect was still pretty radical in 1844. In contrast to the educational and moral pieces in that edition of Flowers for Children, the New England Boys' song about Thanksgiving is a simple, nostalgic look at a holiday in the country, which many readers have connected to Mariah's own childhood Thanksgiving experiences. Thomas Wentworth Higginson's profile described how Mariah's family celebrated Thanksgiving when she was just a little girl. Their earliest teacher was a maiden lady named Elizabeth Francis, but not a relative, and known universally as Mam Betty. She's described as a spinster of supernatural shyness, the never-forgotten calamity of whose life was that Dr. Brooks once saw her drinking water from the nose of her tea kettle. She kept school in her bedroom. It was never tidy, and she chewed a great deal of tobacco. But the children were fond of her and always carried her a Sunday dinner. Such simple kindnesses went forth often from that thrifty home. Mrs. Child once told me that always on the night before Thanksgiving, all the humble friends of the household, Ma'am Betty, the washerwoman, the berry woman, the wood sawyer, the journeyman bakers, and so on, some 20 or 30 in all, were summoned to a preliminary entertainment. They there partook of an immense chicken pie, pumpkin pies made in milk pans, and heaps of doughnuts. They feasted in the large, old-fashioned kitchen and went away loaded with crackers and bread by the father and with pies by the mother, not forgetting turnovers for their children. Such plain applications of the doctrine it is more blessed to give than to receive may have done more to mold the Lydia Mariah child of maturer years than all the faithful labors of good Dr. Osgood to whom she and her brother used to repeat the Westminster Assembly's catechism once a month. So while we don't get to peer into the Francis family Thanksgiving dinner, we do get to see the feast they put together on Thanksgiving Eve for their employees and associates. And at the heart of the celebration were the crackers and bread that Mariah's father, Converse Francis, sent them all home with. Converse Francis was a former apprentice baker who took over his master's business in 1797. An 1855 History of Medford by Charles Brooks describes how crackers became important to Mariah's family history and the image of Thanksgiving. Mr. Francis produced a cracker which was considered as more tasteful and healthy than any heretofore invented. Every year increased his reputation and widened his business. And, as early as 1805, 
Medford crackers were known throughout the country and frequently sent to foreign lands. The writer of this was walking in a street of London in 1834 and saw at a shop window the following sign, Medford crackers. This bread deserved all the fame it acquired, for never had there been any so good, and we think there is now none better. It required great labor, and all the work was done by hand. Each cracker was nearly double the size of those now made, and the dough was kneaded, rolled, weighed, pricked, marked, and tossed into the oven by hand. Now all these are done by machinery. This bread was called crackers because one of them would crack into two equal parts. One piece of dough was rolled out just thick enough to enable it to swell up with the internal steam generated by baking on the hot brick floor of the oven, and holes enough were pricked into the dough to allow a part of the steam to escape and so leave the mass split into two equal parts, adhering mostly by the edges. Mariah Child must have had crackers in her DNA, because even her recipe for a properly stuffed turkey included crackers. The 1832 edition of The American Frugal Housewife included this stuffing recipe, as part of Mariah's instructions on cooking turkey. If you wish to make plain stuffing, pound a cracker, or crumble some bread very fine. Chop some raw salt pork very fine. Sift some sage and summery savory or sweet marjoram if you have them in the house and fancy them, and mold them all together seasoned with a little pepper. An egg worked in makes the stuffing cut better. In my humble opinion, you can't have a proper Thanksgiving without a good stuffing, though my personal recipe is based on toasted bread cubes instead of cracker crumbs. Cutting up the bread for the stuffing is one of the first things I'll do when I start working on our Thanksgiving dinner first thing on Wednesday morning. And maybe, just maybe, I'll listen to Over the River and Through the Wood while I work, now that I know that it's actually a Thanksgiving song. To learn more about Mariah Child and her Thanksgiving song, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 160. We'll have links to several online volumes of Mariah's writing, including an 1854 edition of Flowers for Children and her anti-slavery appeal. We'll also link to some of her household how-tos including that stuffing recipe. I'll throw in a link to Thomas Wentworth Higginson's profile of her, plus more information about her father's Medford crackers. Also, special thanks this week to Grant Raymond Barrett. He made a royalty-free version of Over the River and Through the Wood available on the Internet Archive, and it's his recording that you've heard clips of throughout this episode. And of course, We'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Jared Ross Hardesty's Unfreedom, Slavery and Dependence in 18th Century Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. We have some recent reader feedback to share, most of which is from Twitter. After our interview with Millington Bergeson Lockwood aired, Professor Paula Austin tweeted, We're reading this next week with my African-American history course. To which Millington responded, Wow, thanks. I hope your students find it interesting, and I'm happy to share any more information you think might be helpful. I'd love to hear how it goes. Listener and occasional sponsor of the podcast, Tyson from Liberty & Co., tweeted this after hearing our interview with Nancy Seasholes about the new Atlas of Boston History. Ordered it the moment I finished the podcast, browsed the first few pages, and can't wait to dive in. Boston tour guide extraordinaire Ben Edwards tweeted a photo of a newspaper article from his personal collection about the 1804 snow hurricane, with the comment, We'll be sharing this issue of the Columbian Sentinel from October 10, 1804, with today's fifth graders, 
and recommend the teachers listen to your podcast on the Great Snow Hurricane. A couple of weeks later, Ben tweeted another clipping from his collection and said, From the Massachusetts Sentinel, June 21, 1786. The opening of the bridge over Charles River connecting the north end to Charlestown. At 1,503 feet, it's America's first long deepwater bridge. To learn more, listen to this podcast from Hub History. Thanks, Ben, for incorporating our humble podcast into the supporting material for your great tours. A few people listened to our recent re-airing of our episode about Boston's history of annexing its neighbors, and they had thoughts to share. Mike B. and Amy B. both had comments about Brookline's decision not to be annexed. Amy quipped, Brookline said, we will not be suffocated. Well, Mike said, Brookline said, we'd rather be the People's Republic of Brookline. Referring to the same episode, John C. had a perfect example of constructive criticism. Jake, one quick thing. You called Dorchester a city at one point. Charlestown was legally a city, and I know Roxbury was for its last few years. Dorchester was always a town. I love the podcast, by the way. That's great feedback to get because it shows that he was really listening, he enjoys the podcast, and he's quite knowledgeable about the topic. Another listener, who will remain nameless, wrote in with an example of unconstructive criticism. Speaking of Josiah Quincy, I listened to episode one yesterday and noticed you pronounced Quincy incorrectly. I hope you've since addressed the discrepancy for future listening. So, he dug up a show that's over three years old, on a topic that we've covered in more detail in a later show, and his only feedback is to curtly scold us about our pronunciation. You know what? We've said the word Quincy in many episodes since then. Listen to a few and let me know how my pronunciation was. Or better yet, just don't. We love getting listener feedback. At least, most of it. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we missed, but maybe keep your snide elocution lessons to yourself. If you want to leave us some constructive feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show. If you write us a review, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the deadly 1849 cholera epidemic in Boston. In the meantime, happy Thanksgiving. Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. Over the river and through the wood, oh how the wind does blow. It stings the toes and bites the nose as over the ground we go. Over the river and through the wood and straight to the barnyard gate. It seems we go extremely slow, it is so hard to wait. Over the river and through the wood, now grandmother's cap I spy. Hooray for the fun is the pudding done, hooray for the pumpkin pie. Over the river and through the wood, to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. 
over the river and through the wood Trot past my dapple gray Spring over the ground like a hunting hound For this is Thanksgiving Day Spring over the ground like a hunting hound For this is Thanksgiving Day